Well, let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word again that you have given to us. You have preserved it for centuries for your church. We thank you how you have done that. It's been under attack, will be under attack until you return, but yet you have preserved it for us to have, to enjoy. So we pray this morning as we look into your word that we would consider these things that you have done for us by just preserving your word to us, for us, to have and to know, to read and to study. Help us understand, open up our minds by the power of your spirit that Christ would be glorified and seen today as we look into the word and that we be a people who leave this place changed, not the same from when we came in, but better equipped to serve you, better informed to know you, and ready to glorify you in our daily life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we'll be spending our time this morning. We'll be looking specifically at verses 14 through 16. It's a, a gross understatement to say that the truth is under attack in a fierce way today. Everywhere you look, truth is maligned, or even if there is such a thing as truth is the question. And when the truth is under attack, the church will be under attack. The two go hand in hand. Why? Because we stand for the truth as the true church of God. So when I say the church, I'm not talking about your run-of-the-mill church on the corner who does not teach and preach the word of God. I'm talking about the true church of God, which stands on the promises of God, not anything else. So I want to look at this morning is the, the church the church, the pillar and ground of the truth. And we find this in our text this morning. About A.D. 64, the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple Timothy at Ephesus concerning uh, pastoral duties and establishing church order. And one of those things, he starts right out the gate in chapter 1, talking about the battle for truth and against false teachers and false teaching who had gotten into the church, he also introduced to him the idea of church order. Church order. In chapter 1 and 2. In, in chapter 3, he sets up church leadership. And why? And in verse 14, he says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how to conduct, how one how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was 
revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So this morning, we will look into these four truths regarding the church. Number one is the church as God's household. Two, the church as God's possession. Three, the church as the pillar and support of the truth. And the fourth one is the church's confession or doctrine. One of the things I love about the scriptures is, is, is visual imagery that we see all through the Bible, all through the scriptures. With Paul, he was a master at painting kind of word pictures for us to help us understand the truths of, of God and his rich, uh, his rich uh, essence. And so we'll be looking at these, these realities and, and catch the, the imagery as we, as we go through our time together. Around 95 AD, in Revelation 2, we read that the Lord Jesus Christ addresses his church, his churches, and one of them was a, the church at, at Ephesus, and he, he gives them high praise for not tolerating false doctrine, false teachers. He, and in verse 4, he says, but I have this against you. Don't you love that but, right? But, uh, you've done good things, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. As human beings, we have a a tendency to slide into decline. In the church, we sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're all there at one point or another. We're there. We, we, we go through our work day. We go through our schedules. And we find this, this softening, this decaying of fervor for God. We decline in health. We, in our thinking, we, and even in our Christian walk, decline is, is everywhere. It's part of us. If we're not careful, we have a tendency to drift theologically. We also see that all around us, this drift away from doctrine and truth. Well, one of the ways that God has given the church to not drift into error, it's built into the church itself. And he does that through godly men, godly leadership. Well, several years before Paul even writes to Timothy, he is in Ephesus and he gathers the the Ephesian elders, and he warns them. He warns them, and what he warned them against became a reality in the church that Timothy was at. In Acts chapter 20, he gathers the elders at Ephesus, and he tells them in verses 28 through 30, he says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. He does not say may, they might, but he says they will. In First Timothy, we see a man who is experiencing this exact prophecy come to be. 
But he says, I know, after my departure, first wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a warning for every generation. Every generation. The church must be extremely diligent about guarding the truth against savage wolves that will come in and may even be in, yes, even in here. The enemy does not sleep. He does not sleep. We have seen, Terry and I and Neil and others have seen men come in here, catching him at the door, hit the road. You have to do it. It's a warning for every generation. How do we do that? Well, one thing is uh, simply by remembering the fundamentals, remembering the fundamentals of the truth as God has given to us. I think this little piece of sports history will help to illustrate. If you're a sports fan, you'll love this. I'm not, but it's fitting, so I'll read it. Uh, I found this online. It's an interesting story, but uh, I'll read it. It was July of 1961, and 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. The previous season had ended with a heartbreaking defeat when the Packers squandered a lead late in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. The Green Bay players had been thinking about this brutal loss for the entire offseason, and now, finally, training camp had arrived, and it was time to get to work. The players were eager to advance their game to the next level and start working on the details that would help them win a championship. The coach took nothing for granted. Lombardi was the coach. He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the previous year. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Quote, gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. Lombardi was coaching a group of three dozen professional athletes who just months prior had come within minutes of winning the biggest prize of their sport could offer. And yet, he started it from the very beginning. Lombardi's methodological coverage coverage of the fundamentals continued throughout training camp. Lombardi had an obsession with the basics. His team would become the best in the league at the tasks everyone else took for granted. Six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37-0 to to win the NFL championship. You might say, well, how does this football history fit into this morning's sermon? Well, I think it does. In a sense, it it illustrates the importance of remembering the fundamentals, remembering the basics, not getting high and lofty in our accomplishments as the Ephesian church did in Revelation. That 
Jesus spoke to. Even the most seasoned athletes need to remember the basics, like us, or sloppiness sets in and mistakes are made and victories are lost. Today I want to talk about go, to going to some fundamental truths for us as the church and address why the church and the Lord's days are vital. The church and the Lord's day are vital. So let's take a look here. Let's look at the church and why, why the church and the Lord's day is, is so significant. When it comes to the church, some, some say it's, it's just merely, a, a, it's just merely a, a building full of hypocrites on a Sunday morning. Well, I say to that, no, it's not full because you're not here. There's always room for one more, right? I mean, you could come on in. And so, but on a more personal note, why do you t- attend church? Why do you attend church? I want you to think about this a little bit in your own, your own mind. What, what brings you out this morning to gather with us? To worship. What, made, what motivates you to attend church services? Or on the other side of the coin, what, what motivates you to stay away at times? If you were to go out into the street and put a microphone in someone's face and ask them some of these questions, the question like, why, why do you attend church services? Why do you go to church or not go to church? This would probably be some of the answers you would get some of them are my own answers before I was uh, drafted into the church by God. Um, reasons given would be to, to merit a good standing for God, right? Perform some good work or to go for a sense of community and establish friendships. Or my spouse wants me to go, or my spouse makes me go, or my parents make me go. Maybe, maybe it's habit or routine, to get good feelings by some sense of obligation. Maybe there's nothing else to do. I'll, I'll go and, and meet some people, and some friends, make some friends. Uh, as, a, as a kid being, myself as a kid being raised in a, a Roman Catholic family, I, I was motivated by the fear of judgment of God and obligation. Some view the church as a, a club, just a a social gathering, merely to a place to socialize on a, a Sunday morning. Maybe you're here like that today. I don't know your condition in your mind. You're just here to be with people. You're lonely. You want to come out and be with people. People often think of the church as a, a building instead of seeing the church as a, a dynamic living unity, an entity created by God for the purpose for a specific purpose in the world. So what is your view? What do you think about? Why are you here today? What do you think about when you hear the word church? Just the word itself, a building with a steeple, or just a building where people meet, uh, just a building. Well, it depends how you understand the word church and how it is used. I'm going to look at it from the, the scriptural use today. The answers to these questions are found in our text of Scripture. We find the answers in Paul's first epistle to Timothy. I'll read it again, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, where Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how 
one ought to believe, behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. One of the characteristics Paul possessed was he had an intense love for God, the one who saved him. He called himself the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and was ecstatic at the, the, the gospel truth that saved him. And he also had an intense love for the scripture and the church. The apostle Paul describes the church for us in verse 15, where he uses three vivid phrases. He uses the word household, church, and pillow. So the first one I'd like to look at today with us is uh, this idea of being God's household. The church is God's household. This word household here is a, is a metaphorical term for family because it because that is what it means in verse 4. You look, look it around here in the scripture, in your, in your scripture. It's verse 5, he uses the same idea. And in verse 12, where the word is sometimes translated family or household. We see in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And there again is the same idea. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So we see there that the church is a household. It's a family. The church indeed is a family. It's the household of God, which is the church. There are two ideas that capture the meaning of the word house or household. Uh, we are to be uh, a place, it's a place where one has fixed his residence. We'll see that, we'll develop that in a few minutes. And the second idea that we look at when we see the idea of household is, a, is all the persons forming one family, simply a household, a family. We are the family of God. Often think about, uh, often we think about God and his perfections as, lofty or transcendent. He's, he's far away and above beyond us in every measure, in every way. And we can also uh, see that transcendence as that he is distant. He is far away. He is so far above us that it's difficult to even relate to him at times. I remember growing up as a, in a Catholic church, that was my image of God. He was, he was out there. He's far away, unknowable, unreachable, and uh, distant. And, uh, but the idea that we see in the scriptures is far different than that. Uh, we can, in the gospel accounts, we, we see that uh, we can relate to the nearness of God in his son, Jesus Christ, who became flesh and dwelt with humanity. But in the New Testament culture of Paul and Timothy, with many lifeless deities, Paul proclaims that we are the church of the living God not the dead idols that he, was in, that he has seen all around him, and the only God in, in 1 Timothy 1.17, now the king to the king eternal, 
immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But in contrast to the pagan temples of his day, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul states, Do you not know that you are the temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you know that? You know, there were deities and pagan temples all around in church in, in Paul's day. And so he uses these, these ideas to convey the idea that God does live in us. He's alive and he's not a dead God. We are his temple. And John in John 15, 15, not only are we his family and household, but Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. In a demissive and derogatory way, Jesus was referred to as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I'm in Matthew eleven nineteen, and I am glad that he is. Abraham was called the friend of God. So we see in these ideas that God is close to us. He's near to us. He is, he is imminent in every way, close. For those of you who are, or us who are heavy on the doctrine of God's transcendence, and a bit light on his nearness, hear this. In his book about the church, the title, The Loveliest Place by Dustin Benj, says this about God's relationship to his church and to us. He says this, quote, Unlike a school playground friend, God holds his friends beautifully close to his heart from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't abandon his church for a better or more faithful or more loyal friend. He's never lamented choosing the church as his friend. When God established his friendship with the church, it had absolutely nothing to do with our faithfulness to him and everything to do with his faithfulness to us. And he goes on, there has never been a time in her patchy history where nor will there be a time in her future when God will deny his friend, forsake his friend, or cast his friend aside. When earthly friends disappoint us in their commitment and devotion, we can know God won't. No greater privilege has been given to the church than being able to call God through Christ our Father and our friend. And I say amen. The household of God is a, the Christian community. It's God's family. The church is a family with God as the father, believers as his children, and therefore we are brothers and sisters. You will spend, we will spend eternity together. We are more brothers and sisters in Christ in some ways, in many ways, than we are brothers and sisters of our own flesh. The fact that we are a family has weighty connotations to it. It's a big deal. First, it means that we are in an eternal relationship and we will always be a family. The church of the living God, in the Old Testament, God called is called the living God. It is also a designation for God in the New Testament, being used some 
15 times throughout the New Testament. It emphasizes that he is eternal and immortal. It stresses that he is the source of life, the one who communicates life to believers in Christ, as we see in 1 Timothy 1, 16. Scripture teaches us that in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, that we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, he says, And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. See, because God dwells in us when we come together, we come as the church, the congregation of the living God. Do you understand the, the impact of that, the weightiness of that very concept? That is big. It is huge. And so please consider these things that we're talking about this morning. This is the glorious truth of the assembling together on the Lord's Day. All of us who proclaim to be Christians are indwelt by this living God. We make up the assembly of the living God. The concept of us as a family and an assembly of the living God should motivate us to be, want to be together more than less. You know, reading and listening to the Word of God alone is good. I love reading the Word, listening to the Word. And singing to God alone is also a good thing. I don't sing alone. I sing alone when nobody can hear me because obvious reasons. But, you know, you sing in your car, you're riding and singing along to the music. That's a good thing. Sing to God, pray to God, to read his word. But there's something, you know, for me, and maybe I'm hoping most of us, all of us, is there's something about singing to God together and hearing his word preached together, which is far better. Our hearing and singing intensify when we are with the assembly. I don't know about you, but, you know, from where I, we usually sit up front here and uh, there are days where the congregation singing is like, I just get lost in the, in the moment. I've even forgotten to come up here at times in the past because I'm just kind of, you've got to get mesmerized by the, the gloriousness of singing to our, our great God and creator. It's just the way it is. It's how God has wired us, I think. And, uh, but it's a great delight to hear the church sing. It's a great delight, delight to come together to hear the word preached as we're together as God's family. It's so true. Being together is energizing. Listen to what Martin Luther said, the idea of being energized by being together. He, he said this, quote, At home, in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. So true. So true. This is why. See, this is why God requires that we meet together. Not to just check off some legalistic block for the week or to, to think, oh, I did my duty. No, no. It goes way beyond that. If you're, if you're looking at it that way, 
that is an extremely shallow idea of coming to church and meeting with God and his people. It's much deeper than that. He requires us to meet together. In Hebrews 10.25, he says, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, all the more as the, you see the day approaching. And that day is referring to as the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ. See, we have a, we have a responsibility. We have an accountability that we're going to give to Christ when he returns. And one of those accountabilities are how we assembled with one another. How we assembled. Are we going to hear with that one, well done, good and faithful servant? You see, live streaming won't do. TV church won't do. If you are in shut-in, you are shut-in and you can't be at church, well, that's a whole different matter altogether. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking if you are able to be with God's people, you ought to be with God's people. Um, you know, as a, as a leader in a church, listen, I'll be honest with you, there are days where I don't feel like coming to church. I feel like tell, texting Terry and say, hey, you know, uh, I need a break, I'm tired, or I don't know. I can think of a million excuses. But you know what? <laughs> Every time, it doesn't happen very often, but there's just those days where you, you know, burnout's coming in, man, I gotta, I gotta do something here. And I'll tell you, every single time I've felt that way and have come to church anyway, it was like the best thing I, should, I did. It's just energizing. It's just rich when I come and see God's people here together. So God commands believers to meet together. We need it. And I mean that with it. We need it. You know, we hear that all the time. Oh, I need this. I need this, you know, this thing, this refrigerator, whatever. No, we need the church. We need to be with God's people. It's an absolute need. I don't know about you, but during COVID, when there was a shutdown going on, not good. No, not good. We need to be with each other. As people indwelled by the living God, we need the real thing. We need to regularly assemble with fellow Christians, which are temples of the living God. We are all temples of the living God. The Sunday gathering is an assembly of the living God. But to stay apart on the Lord's, Lord's day should never be our default setting. or even a regular event for the Christian. God wants us to be together, to glorify him, to sing to him, to give to him, to hear from him, and to provoke one another to love and good deeds. In person and together, face to face. If morning and evening service is not part of your Lord's Day, I want to encourage you to, to come and partake of what God has prepared for you here. Again, 
Hebrews 10.25, come and seek ways to encourage one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. A great way for us to do that as the church is our evening service format. Um, I say this because, you know, this room has got maybe a third of the people here on a Sunday night. Our evening service is great. It's a, it's a bit informal before the preaching of the word begins, and then we do hear the sermon, and then afterwards we, we have a, a time where you can hang around and be the last one to shut the lights off if you want to. It's just a great time afterwards to be together, to talk with one another, to get to know each other a little bit better. We can talk about the Red Sox, or you can talk about some deep truth of Scripture or some struggle you're going through or whatever hobby that you have. It's just a wonderful time to meet together with the family of God after a day of worship, being refreshed through the scriptures and song. Come and see and hear what good thing God is doing in his people. Come and see all the little temples scattered around the room, temples of God. When you're not here, you're missed. Don't think it's no big deal. I'm just one person. Oh, there's all kinds of other people that would be, they won't miss me. Yeah, 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 you're missed. You are missed. We'd love to be with you and be with one another. Your presence encourages your pastors, by the way, and other leaders, deacons, even without uttering a word. Just by being here, it's such a great encouragement. In Psalm 66, the, the psalm that speaks of uh, redemption, and we see in verse 5 of Psalm 66 that the psalmist writes, Come and see. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. We, we, just, we read Ephesians chapter 1 and saw all that God, who he is, what he's done for his church. It is such a good thing to see. Um, one more thing about Sunday. I don't want to labor too much. It's my last point. But, you know, Sunday we meet morning, meet the evening. It's one day out of seven that God wants us to meet together with his people. If you come only on Sunday morning, you're coming 50%, right, of one day. So let's translate this out into, into, into the world here. If I went to work 50% of the time, what's going to happen there? What's going to happen with that? If I went to school, if I went to college and went only to 50% of the classes, or took 50% of the tests, how's that going to work? I'd forfeit, right? I'd forfeit worldly things. But when it comes to the church, it comes to meeting God on his day, the Sabbath day, the, the day of God, the Lord's day, we forsake far greater than any worldly thing that we could be working for. Workplace, school place, 50%. Consider these things. Consider these things. So the first thing we saw was we are God's household. The next thing we want to look at in our text of Scripture is Paul uses another phrase in his description of the church in the term, the church of the living God. The phrase, the church of the living God, means that the church is God's possession. He's the owner and maker of it. Let's look a little bit deeper into the word church. The 
The secular use of the word carried the idea of a public meeting or gathering. We like a, a like a town meeting uh, or an election or something, some sort of that thing. Uh, and then the church, we see in the Christian sense, uh, the word is used as the word ecclesia. It's used to uh, meaning is to, is to be called out by God. People who are called out. The, the Christian community is the ecclesia of God and. Another related word, which is used 13 times in the, the New Testament to identify God's people, uh, is this idea of the elect. The elect. Uh, it's those who have been picked out for oneself. God has picked us out for himself. We are chosen by God. Nothing in and of ourselves that God would want or did want, but because of his own sovereign grace, he selected us and saved us. That's God's idea of his elect church. This is how God views the church. We are called out, picked out, and chosen by him. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 this morning, as I read, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So the reality of the elect is no small thing. We look at the detail and the time that God puts into the church. It's not intrinsic in us. We are unable to please God naturally because we are corrupt and sinful, and we are creatures who are sinning all the time. What makes us choice? This idea also carries the idea of, of, of a cho- something that's choice, a select item, the best of its kind or class or excellence. It's not in us. And what makes us choice before God? The best of kind, excellent, it's what God does through the work of the Spirit, through the sacrifice of Christ and regeneration and imputation of his righteousness to us. In Christ, he put our sin on him, and he puts his righteousness on us. That's what makes the church so great and special and important. So we are the church of the living God. Don't miss that word. Uh, The word denotes possession. We belong to him. The church is people, not a building. The church is made up of redeemed people. We are living trophies of God's grace and chosen by God. So just look around the room. Just look around for a second, and uh, this is what you see. God's trophies of his grace all around us. So you see, when you come into the body, when you come into the church and you have these images before you, you look at your neighbor and you think, trophy of grace, trophy of grace, trophy of grace. Ephesians chapter 1, what God did in that person, elected them, redeemed them, chose them out of the world, sanctifies them. Is that not big? That's big. It's a big deal. And so if we have these images in our minds continually, man, when Saturday night comes, I want to get here. I want to see these things. I want to be with the people of God. From my perspective, as a leader in the church, it's a glorious sight. It's a glorious thing to see what God is doing 
has done and will do in his church. While the church of the living God, in contrast to the dead gods of the pagan temples at Ephesus, Ephesus was known for its idol worship. The Ephesus was a, the temple of Artemis or Diana, and it's referred to in Acts chapter 19, verse 35 through 36. Uh, it was a temple dedicated to the fertility goddess Artemis. It was located in Ephesus where Timothy lived, and this is present-day Turkey, it was considered to be one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was not an insignificant building. It was dedicated to wicked and immoral practices. Pliny, the historian uh, church father, recorded the length of the temple at 425 feet and the width at 225 feet. There were some 127 columns 60 feet in height, which supported the roof. It was a pagan temple of worship. In Greek myth, Artemis is the twin of Apollo, the virgin goddess of the moon. At Ephesus, the goddess whom the Greeks associated with Artemis was carved of wood and kept decorated with jewelry. An image of Artemis was even imprinted on Ephesian currency. See, the Ephesians worshipped a dead, lifeless idol. Well, due to the spread of Christianity, the Artemis religion came to nothing by the 4th century. In 401, Christostom had the temple destroyed. So back into verse 15, you don't miss the imagery that Paul uses to describe the church as the pillar and support in what it does in supporting in upholding the truth, as well as placing the truth high on a pedestal. With their familiarity of the Ephesian temple Diana, the Ephesians knew all about pillars and what they were used for. Just a little more background here on the, on the pillar itself of the day was pillars were made of this Parian marble. It was considered the finest quality. Parian marble is a fine-grained, semi-translucent, pure white, and entirely flawless marble. It was used for the construction of the Acropolis, the Temple of Zeus in Olympia, the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, and in almost all the famous temples and sanctuaries of that time. Famous statues were also made of Parian marble. It was estimated that 70% of the sculptures excavated the Aegean islands were made of from Parian marble. In their day, the height of the day, it must have been quite a sight. And so Paul captures this imagery as he talks about the church being a, a pedestal for the truth of God, a pillar. This high-quality Parian marble in antiquity either acts as a support or a carrier in architecture, regarded sometimes as the pedestals of the gods. Well, in God's view of his priceless bride, the church, he uses both words, pillar and support, which come from the Greek language as simply implying something that stiffens, stabilizes, or steadies, or holds in place. The church 
As the church, we have been trusted to put the gospel truth on a pedestal, to support it. And we all have a part to play in supporting and upholding the truth. Whether it's through evangelizing the lost or encouraging one another one-on-one, or when we meet as a body on the Lord's Day, we have a part to play. The church is the pillar. It supports and upholds the truth. The pillars of Ephesus were 60 feet high and would have been the highest thing around. Implying that we are to be supporting the truth of God's word to the highest place for all to see. Keep in mind that in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul is not referring to the church as the source of truth or the creator of truth. He is saying the church is what holds up the truth to the world. So we see, number one, we are God's household. Number two, we are the church of the living God. And number three, we see that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The truth, the truth, what is Paul referring to here when he uses the word truth? Well, in our day, you, you hear oftentimes, you've heard, or will hear, how often have you heard the statement, truth is relative. Truth can be whatever you want it to be. If you want to be a male, be one. If you want to be a female, fine. If you want to be a parakeet, go ahead. Right? That's next. I'm going to identify as an animal. Well, we're not that far away you know, from being like animals in our, in our day. But it's whatever you want it to be. It's so ridiculous. You chuckle, but this is a reality. And, you know, people marrying their pets. It's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre, a world. All over the place. We need the truth. What is truth? You make it what you want it to be. Some say there's, there's no such thing as truth. What's true today will be not true tomorrow. Well, go try building a bridge that way. Change the formula of concrete. See how that goes. Truth is not relative. It's not relative in the physical world, and it's not true. It's not relative in the physical world. It's not relative in the spiritual world. It is not relative at all. Facts are facts, and we can't change them. Can't. Trying to, we can't do it. For example, I just said issues of gender, issues of marriage. Issues of sexuality. You want to know where the truth is? Go to Genesis chapter 2. Right there. doesn't change. A five-year-old can read it and understand it and know it. Ideas on those issues 60 years ago were radical, radically different than they are today. We live in a time when people self-define truth to be whatever they want it to be. Look in the book of Judges. We read over and over that ancient Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Over and over again. It didn't work out so well. They faced the consequences. In the first century, Pilate sarcastically and arrogantly asked Jesus, who was the very essence of truth, the question, what is truth, Jesus? 
in Jesus. Truth was staring him right in the face and could have breathed out fire and consumed him in a nanosecond. Can you imagine the look on Pilate's face when he faces Jesus face to face? Because he did. He faced Jesus when he left this earth, the king of glory. He had the opportunity right there. He had the opportunity to be saved, facing Jesus square in the eye. John 18, 38. This is nothing new. Nothing new. Nothing has changed. Politicians of our day are asking the same question. Our culture is no different. We live in a world that believes it does not need God and truth. And the more we try to work out our own problems without truth, the deeper into our problems we get. Do you see it? Do you see it as you look at your world, watch the news, talk to people? We're not getting out of it. We're getting deeper and deeper into the spiral of unbelief. And then there's religion masquerading as the church of God. It's doing it too. I was raised a Roman Catholic, and I'm not one anymore, so I can speak to that issue. But Roman Catholicism teaches that tradition and sacred scripture make up truth. I was raised in a Catholic home, went to a Catholic school for years, went to a Catholic church for years, went to CCD class, so I know what I speak. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 82 says this, quote, both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. What an abomination that is. That's just rank abomination right there. Within the Catholic autonomy of tradition, many doctrines have been supposedly revealed to the Roman Catholic Church over the centuries. For example, there is the veneration of Mary, Mariology, her immaculate conception and her bodily assumption into heaven. There is no, there's also the apocrypha, transubstantiation, praying to the saints, confessional, penance, purgatory, papal infallibility, and the list goes on. When I came out of the Catholic Church hearing the truth of Scripture, and by the way, I was told for years in my, in my life that don't bother reading the Bible because you can't understand it. You need a special person to tell you what it means. When I read the scripture in a lumberyard with some regular guys working with lumber, and they had me read the scriptures, and I could understand it, I was, I was literally outraged because I was lied to. Who people who should have known better. So I tend to have a, a kind of a, a zeal and passion for the word of God, rightly defined and rightly preached and explained. 
So those things I said, look, look all you want. You won't find them in the scripture. Those teachings, they're not there. In 1 Timothy 3, 15, Paul is not referring to the church as the source of truth or the creator of the truth. He is saying the church is what upholds the truth, firm to the world. Notice there's no mention of man-made tradition as being a source of truth in Scripture. You will not find that idea anywhere. Jesus, in fact, rebuked that idea. In Matthew 7, 15, he said, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And in Paul, we see his warning in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he is the truth. I am the truth. I am the way. No man comes to the Father but through me. He said in John 17, 17, the word of God is truth. And in 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, he says, Peter writes, we have, a more, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. See, it's in the word. It's not in experiences and things that we see around us. He says in verse 20, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what is this truth that the church is to hold up as the pillar of the church. Well, this brings us to our final point. It's the message of the church in verse 16. Since the church is the pillar and support of the truth, Paul outlines what is to go out. Verse 16, without debate, without controversy, he says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. Well, what is this mystery of godliness? Well, as we look at the meaning of mystery here, it is simply something that was not revealed until an appointed time. The mystery is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul defines it for us in Ephesians chapter 3, where he speaks of the mystery of Christ that was hidden in the past, but now is revealed. And the truths of salvation and the righteousness found in Jesus Christ and the Gentiles as the church. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The truth that we are to support and proclaim is found in these six truths in verse 16 of our text, and summarized in this statement. The redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ, number one, he was manifested in the flesh. This speaks of the incarnation. Jesus taking on flesh and dwelling among men. The second one we see in our text, that he was vindicated by the Spirit. This speaks of his life, death, burial, resurrection, 
ascension. The third thing we see is he was seen by angels at the incarnation. Fourth, proclaimed among the nations during his own ministry as well as the apostles. Number five, believed on in the world during his own ministry as well as through the ministry of the apostles. And the sixth thing is taken up in glory at the ascension. This is the truth that the church is to proclaim, uphold, put on a pillar. God is, at this time, God has chosen in, in, in Paul's day to wait until now, the end times, to reveal the mystery of godliness to the world through the church and through the ministry of the truth. So as we close, there are four foundational truths to consider. Remember the football? Right? Foundational truths, simple things, four points. Number one. The importance for the church lies in the godly order in the church, God's household, verse 15. The second thing we see, the importance of the church lies in the, in the God who is the possessor and source of the church, in verse 15. The third truth we want to think about is the importance of the church lies in the purpose of the church, to uphold the truth, in verse 15. And in verse 16, the importance of the church lies in the message of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 16. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this truth that you've preserved for us once again. We, we love you. We love your word. We love the church. We love the truths, we, the deep truths that we have seen this morning about what you have done in us, for us. You reside in us. What a tremendous thing, reality to think about. We pray that you'd give us a renewed understanding and passion for your church. And as we reflect on these foundational truths of the church, give us a renewed desire to Reach the lost with your gospel, hidden in ages past, now entrusted to us, your church. Forgive us for being lazy or lax in our service and time toward you and your people. So we pray that you'd help us with these things, remind us of these things, change us where we need to change in our thinking and concepts of, the, of you and the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.